1: Welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with big-name guests on every show. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks, as always, for hitting play. Now, this week marks the anniversary of the event billed as the Global Jukebox, with an estimated audience of 1.9 billion people being broadcast to nearly half the world's population. It's 12 noon in London, 7 a.m. in Philadelphia, and around the world it's time for Live Aid. Sixteen hours of live music in aid of famine relief in Africa. Wembley welcomes their Royal Highnesses, the Prince and Princess of Wales. Yes, of course, I'm talking about Live Aid, July 13th, 1985. Two live concerts featuring the biggest musical acts on the planet held simultaneously at Wembley Stadium in London and the John F. Kennedy Stadium in Philadelphia. Today you'll hear from some people who will share their memories of Live Aid in London. I know it was a dual affair with Philadelphia, but I'll be focusing on the London side, as that's where my guests played. Sadly, I don't have Bob Geldof or Freddie Mercury or Bono, but three guys who did perform on the bill on the day. Now, for anyone who isn't aware of Live Aid, now, if you're not, you must be well under the age of 40, then it was a music-based fundraising initiative crafted mainly by the Boomtown Rats lead singer Bob Geldof and Midge Ure. After a news report from Michael Burke was shown around the world of the famine affecting millions of people in Ethiopia, the pair had banded together to produce the huge charity single Do They Know It's Christmas, featuring a whole host of megastars. On the back of that success came plans to hold a fundraising concert, which Geldof actually attributes the idea to Boy George, who first suggested it. It was decided pretty early on that it would be a dual-venue concert, with Geldof saying in an interview beforehand that the idea was to have Duran Duran play on stage at Wembley, and then, whilst they were setting up for the next act, another stage would have Bruce Springsteen playing. The organising was not only a logistical nightmare, but took a lot of manipulation to get the acts to agree to play too. Live Aid production manager Andy Zvek is quoted as saying, Bob had to play some tricks to get artists involved. He had to call Elton and say Queen and Bowie were in. And then, of course, he'd phone Bowie and say Elton and Queen are in. And then he'd phone Queen and say Bowie and Elton are in. It was a game of bluff. Although not everyone had to be tricked into playing.
2: I got my manager to phone Bob Geldof and say that I absolutely wanted to be part of it.
1: That's Howard Jones, who had fifteen top forty hits between 1983 and 1992 in the UK, and his biggest US hit was "No One Is to Blame," which topped out number four.
2: I was actually on tour in America, um, you know, at the time, and so, and I and I wanted to be part of the London show rather than the, you know yeah. the American. So I fl- I flew back.
1: One of the biggest bands of all time, The Who, they also played the London show. At this stage, former Faces and Small Faces drummer and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee Kenny Jones was part of the band. He joined in 1978 after he was asked by Pete Townsend to replace Keith Moon, who'd died. The band had split up in 1982, but Kenny explained that Pete, Roger, John and himself were asked personally to take part, and it was an easy decision. Bob Geldof
0: came around and uh, said, we ended up in the wine bar and said, look, I want the band to join, to do live, they told us all about it, so... We said, OK, yeah, we'll do it. So we did it.
1: Two top promoters were charged with organising the shows, Harvey Goldsmith in London and Bill Graham in America, although they weren't given much choice. Goldsmith said, I didn't get a chance to say no. Bob arrived in my office and basically said, we're doing this. With the help of a lot of prominent people both sides of the Atlantic, what they pulled off was a feat unseen before and pretty much since. To be honest, it was the most ambitious international satellite television venture of all time, as Howard Jones explains. It was a
2: fantastic event to be involved in. It was, it was almost like the first truly sort of global um, event, whether it was linked with technology and. And it was for such an amazing
1: cause. They managed to secure a three-hour primetime spot on the ABC network, and with the additions of ad hoc networks, it meant coverage reached 85% of the US population. The London show feed was supplied globally by the BBC, and even for seasoned rock star veterans, the thought of playing live to a global audience of that size was daunting.
0: It was quite an in- incredible day, I mean, because it was... Uh, we'd all done Wembley Stadium before, so... Then the pennies started to drop. You're playing in front of three billion people. Or so well, I can't remember the figure now. So you kind of go, oh, should you had to forget that you were playing in front of that many people. You played to the audience there. So yeah.
1: The Who's Kenny Jones there. The lineups of both shows featured pretty much the biggest acts around at the time. Although famously, Phil Collins, when flying over to the US after his performance at Wembley, met Cher on board. She claimed to know nothing about any of it. She went with Phil to the stadium and appeared at the very end on stage. Status quo, British rock favourites opened the whole event, well, after the rendition of God Save the Queen, of course, and they used their classic rocking all over the world. What followed is now the stuff of legend, and in no particular order, ranging from Dire Straits and U2 to Paul Weller and Sting, Brian Ferry to David Bowie, Elton John to The Who, and Queen to Sir Paul McCartney. And that was just Wembley. At the John F. Kennedy Stadium, a crowd of over 80,000 in attendance saw in-person sets from Black Sabbath to Ario Speedwagon, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, to the Beach Boys, Judas Priest to Brian Adams, the Pretenders to Madonna, Mick Jagger to the Cars, Bob Dylan to Duran Duran, and of course, the reuniting surviving members of Led Zeppelin who performed the classics, Rock & Roll, Whole of Love, and Stairway to Heaven. Two incredible lineups. Now, with so many superstars at both venues, a crazy logistical setup and schedule had to be adhered to. There was just no way around it if this thing was going to work and sync up properly. Things could not run over for time, even for some of the biggest names in the world. Backstage at Wembley, people were moved in and out of the dressing room areas like clockwork.
3: There were basically there were three porter cabins uh, um, backstage, and it was. Uh... Basically, you had 20 minutes before and 20 minutes after you went on to, to, to use one of these pools, pool cabins, so there were you know you did pump in the people back there, and there was obviously a backstage catering area and, uh, um, and stuff like that.:
1: That's Nick Kershaw, a man who spent more weeks on the UK charts during this time, 1984 and 1985, than any other solo artist. And the timings on stage were just as strict as it was backstage, as Kenny Jones explains. And you you only got, like, 20
0: minutes to play or so, or half an hour to play, because there's so many bands on to get on there. There was traffic lights, actually, on the stage, facing the band, and it went sort of, sort of, same as traffic lights, you know, the 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 stop. <laughs> when it went red, we had to stop. Otherwise, they pulled up apart.
1: With all the stars coming together for such an incredible cause and such a tremendous show, Kenny also spoke about what the atmosphere was like backstage.
0: Oh, it was great backstage. It was uh A nice feeling of camaraderie, and we are all doing something together collectively as a music. Uh, All the bands came together and doing something worthwhile.
1: So it felt good. On stage, some of the performances have gone down as the greatest of all time. And, well, you know who I'm talking about. Queen's 21-minute set was voted the greatest live performance in the history of rock in a 2005 industry poll voted on by artists, journalists and music industry executives. Freddie Mercury stole the show and had the audience in the palm of his hand, most notably when he led the crowd in unison during an a cappella section with the sustained AO becoming known as the notes heard around the world. Howard Jones famously got to play that very piano Freddie used, but he wasn't to his, or Phil Collins as it turns out, usual standard.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, I, you know, it's it's not the best piano in the world, but um, it had a few sort of dodgy notes down the left-hand side, <laughs> but, <laughs> down the bass end. <laughs> um. But yeah, I, I, as, as I was going on, Phil, Phil Collins had just done a song and he and he said, oh, he said, watch some of those, you know, the low notes down the bass end, so I, I, I did.
1: The Wembley crowd that day, with just over 70,000 people packed into the football stadium, were on top form. As well as singing along with Freddie, they joined in with Elvis Costello on his request to sing the Beatles classic All You Need Is Love, and crucially, at another prominent point, when Bob Geldof was on stage with his band The Boomtown Rats singing one of their biggest hits, I Don't Like Mondays, Bob stopped after the line, The lesson today is how to die. Bob had stopped, raised his fist, and the crowd went wild. Later, Spandau Ballet's Gary Kemp said... Dare I say it? It was evangelical, that moment when Geldof stopped and raised his fist in the air. He was a sort of statesman, you would just follow him. He just has a huge charisma. Howard Jones also reflected on his time on stage, and what would prove to be his standout moment from the show.
2: I mean, for me, the highlight was when I got to the chorus of Hide and Seek, the whole audience joined yeah. in, you know. And yeah. and it was it was one of those moments that you never, ever forget. It was like you're being carried by this huge wave of, um, of um, well, I can only describe it as a goodwill, really, you know, and and it sort of sends shivers down I me mean, now, even even you know, even thinking about it. So it's it's a, a, a privilege
3: to be involved in that.
1: And speaking of favourite memories from Wembley, surprisingly, Nick Kershaw thinks back to travelling from the event.
3: I think my my fondest memory is travelling back on the on the on a minibus from, from the stadium to the conference centre which is what where a lot of the sort of a lot of our gear was so we're sitting on this minibus crummy little minibus driving back and there's you know some geezer behind me singing do they know it's Christmas and it was it was Bowie I was going <laughs> to turn around and tell him to shut up but I didn't realise he was sitting behind me it was just <laughs> Bizarre.
1: Now, I know what you're thinking. A minibus in and out doesn't sound like A-star top celebrity style. Well, some rockers had a much more glamorous way of getting to and from the event.
0: I just learned to fly helicopters. I was living in the country as well. And so I had the helicopter in the garden. And I flew to Battersea and landed there. And then I got into Live Aid. They had two bigger helicopters, ferrying people back to the stadium back again. We had to be there at nine o'clock in the morning or sort of ten o'clock in the morning, and so I didn't want to spend the rest of the day there. So I went, did the in reverse, flew back to that airport, flew back to where I do, and then watched it on TV. And there was, then, then about an hour before we went on, I did, I did exactly the same again. Um, I took a pilot with me who flew my helicopter, and so I knew that once I was there, I'm staying there, and I'm going to have a drink afterwards. So it was a very memorable day for me to do that.
1: The event itself, both in London and Philadelphia, went down in history. Now, I know there were criticisms and controversies around what happened with the money at the time, and, well, let's be honest, still today many governments are not the cleanest, and it's claimed that despite Live Aid trying to run aid efforts directly to NGOs in Ethiopia, there are allegations that some of the money raised was siphoned off by authorities for various, well, nefarious things. But what still stands and shines through is the power of the world through the face of music, the music community and music fans coming together to combat what was a major disaster. Millions of people at a time of opulence and wealth in the Western world were literally dying of hunger. The event and preceding charity single, of course, helped to raise hundreds of millions, which went to help with this.
2: People came together to raise money you know 100 million quid or whatever it was for um ethiopia and and it was you know and it was a great example of of what we can do when we decide to to get together and, and and work together
1: so that's a little look at the wembley leg of live aid i hope you enjoyed this little nostalgic show let me know what your memories of live aid were were you at one of the concerts or know someone who was did you sit and watch it all day on tv did you hate it? Whatever it is, let me know and I'll read out some comments on next week's show. Email VintageRockPod at gmail.com or reach out on all the social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and there's that new Threads app thingy as well. I'm on there. It's been created to rival Twitter. I don't know how to use it yet, but whatever it is, just search for VintageRockPod on all of those apps and drop me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Also, don't forget to leave a five-star review of the podcast on the podcast app that you use. It really does make a big difference, and it's totally free. It's your way to help grow the show. Thank you so much. Also, check out the Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube. Loads of you are getting involved on the channel. The channel is growing rapidly. Well over 3,000 people take part every single day on the daily polls on there. Video views are over 1.4 million now. You can see loads of great videos of me interviewing top rock stars are all on there. So again, just search for Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube. YouTube, hit subscribe, hit that bell button, it's all totally free, and that would be amazing. So anyway, until next week then, thanks so much for listening, and take care.
4: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.